Our scripture passage for this morning I take from Titus chapter 2. If your pew Bible is the same as mine, you'll find that on page 1829 of your New Testament. Titus chapter 2. I want to read the entire chapter with you. Titus chapter 2, beginning to read with verse 1. This is the word of God. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, uh, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrines of God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and, and, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every law's deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. And our text for this morning is framed in the words of verse 11 of the passage we've just read, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning in Bowmanville, Paul speaks in our text of the grace of God, but we do not find universal agreement concerning this grace of God. Not all churches agree on the interpretation or the application of God's grace, but it's also true that not all men and women find God to be gracious, and that ought not to surprise us, that's understandable, since in the final analysis, this whole matter of concerning the grace of God is of vital importance only to those who are aware of and are burdened by their sin. I think the Heidelberg Catechism of the, of the Reformed Churches addresses that important question in the very, uh, very opening chapters of, 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 of Lord's, or opening salvos of Lord's Day 1, when in answer to the question, what must I know? What must I know in order to live and to die in the joy of belonging to the Lord? And the answer comes that, that, that we're taught that we must know the first thing is how great our sins and misery are. And that makes sense. 
That makes sense. Because if you have no knowledge of sin, why would you need a savior? It's only, it's only the trembling lips of the, of the penitent sinner that can inquire about God's grace and with eternal significance. Being helplessly overcome beneath the load of his own sin, being overwhelmed with his own failure, and having found all other methods to be futile, it is only the penitent sinner, only the penitent sinner that finally lies prostrate and looks tearfully upward and asks almost despairingly, is there a way of escape? Will God forgive me? Is God indeed gracious also to me? And congregation, perhaps as you examine your own heart in anticipation of participating in the sacrament this morning, in this past week, perhaps perhaps you have been troubled by the accusing finger of your, your own conscience Perhaps an awareness of your sin has troubled you. Perhaps being convicted of your sin brought you grief, maybe even fear. It may even be that even now you have no certainty of salvation, though you have been exhausted by your efforts of trying to find it. My dear people of God, it is tragic, but it is not unusual to find men and women in the church exerting themselves, striving to find peace with God, trying to find God's grace and assurance of salvation by, by being good and doing good. And yet they can never achieve it, for God's word comes to them and confronts them with the, with the reality that the stains of their sins are just too deep to be removed by, by, by human effort. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah chapter 2 thunders the word of God and says to the Old Testament church, to the Old Testament congregation, he says, though, you're, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me and it is forever true that true peace or assurance of salvation will always escape us as long as we continue in our attempts to achieve it in our own strength. You will remember that was also Martin Luther's deep uh, experience and his dilemma. You know the story. Almost 500 years ago, the German miner's son struggled with that same question in, in the cloistered walls of a monastery. Above all else, he wanted assurance of God's pardon. He wanted relief from his conscience-stricken soul, and he knew that his sins condemned them, and, and, and he desperately sought peace with God. Where could he find it? Philosophy had no answer. The Church of Rome emphasized self-denial, and he tried that. He gave himself unreservedly to every form of discipline and self-denial. In fact, he punished himself in order that peace might come to his tortured soul. And yet, years later, he would write of, of these efforts, and he would say, For almost 15 years, I wore myself out with self-sacrifice, tormenting myself with fasting and vigils and prayers and other very burdensome tasks with the idea of attaining righteousness by my works. And often, often I was horrified at the name of Jesus Christ, and when I regarded him on the cross, it was as if I had been struck by lightning. For I labored, he says, for I labored under the belief that I must, by my own good works, seek to make Christ my gracious friend, and thereby reconcile an angry God. But all of his efforts were ineffective. His works brought him no peace, and yet he continued to search and to struggle until one day God, 
God revealed to him the words that, that dispelled the thick darkness in his soul. Words that were to bring the light of the, of, of, of the gospel back to all of Europe. The just shall live by faith. And suddenly in grace, in grace he had found a God who was gracious. He found a God who indeed who, who needed not to be appeased but, only, uh, but, but had only, uh, only to be trusted and obeyed. And a, and a new era dawned for Martin Luther and through him for the entire world. The glorious doctrine of God's marvelous grace obscured for centuries by Rome's rituals and penances and pilgrimages and endless traditional tra- tra- ecclesiastical trappings had suddenly come to light again. The great New Testament truth, by grace you are saved through faith, was restored to its original glory. And Luther's newly found peace had not come from some meritorious works that he had done for God. No, no. It was all for unmerited mercy which God in Christ had shown to him. Now he knew that God was gracious and in order that we too might find and have that same peace, God in grace gives us his word and his sacraments. This morning, a table is prepared for us. And again this day, in a particular way, God comes to us to say, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in mercy. So I want to administer God's word to you this morning using as my theme the marvelous grace of God. We want to define it, we want to see it, demonstrate it, and then we want to examine its cost. So the marvelous grace of God, we want to define it, we want to see it demonstrated, and then we want to examine its cost. Congregation, for many years I was privileged to teach church education programs in my own churches over the history of my ministry and and also after retirement into various churches and and mostly I worked with young adults and teenage members of the church. I was usually assigned the senior in the pre-confession classes and it was my task then to teach them to understand and to love the doctrines of grace. And then to introduce that topic, it was my practice at the beginning of each season to ask my students, what is grace? And I usually got the right answer. The most common and simple and classical textbook definition is, grace is unmerited favor. Sure, I would say, that's correct. That's what the book said. But when I press these young people and I say to them, yes, but precisely what does that mean? And more importantly, what does that mean for you personally? Well, then I was often met with a a whole lot of blank stares, opening the door for me to, to further expand their minds and hopefully their hearts and their souls. And I would begin with an illustration. And I would tell them, imagine that one day I'm confronted with a poor beggar, a homeless person, and I see him shivering on the streets in the wintertime. Imagine now that I take pity on and have compassion on this man and I give him my own coat in order that he might be protected from the blustery night. That's grace. And it is so. It is grace because I am not indebted to him in any way. 
he has no legal claim upon my good favor, but simply out of the compassion of my own heart, I provided for him. And that would be a demonstration of the grace of man, if you will. That's different, for example, for my family, my wife and my children, because of my marriage vows and my baptismal vows. I have an obligation towards them as husband and as father. I'm obligated to feed, clothe, shelter, and instruct them in the mysteries of faith, but, but not for a stranger. My compassion for this street person would be an act of kindness, which legally the man has no right to expect, and I have no legal obligation to provide. And now the grace of God is somewhat similar to that, but infinitely higher and greater. God gives his good gifts to not only those who have no claim upon him, but also to those who have positively set themselves against him as enemies. Not only does he send his common grace to all men, meaning then that all men receive sunshine and rain and other material blessings, but he sends also his special grace to, to men whereby he redeems their souls for time and eternity from hell and all of it in man's undeserving. Man has no legal rights to God's favor and God has no obligation to provide it. But there's more. Not only is God's favor towards us gracious, it's also ancient. Because God's word tells us that his particular love and favor toward us is even older than men. Paul informs Timothy that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling and, and, and not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Imagine that. Try to imagine that God's heart was already overflowing with loving grace towards you long before you as the object of his special saving grace had even come into existence. With great joy and jubilation, Paul bursts into praise before the Ephesian congregation when he says, Blessed be the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. People of God, you hear it already. We have here the wonderful doctrine of predestination. Oh, some people foolishly dislike this doctrine of election and they try to argue it out of their creed. How foolish. They have not understood. They have missed it completely. You see, election, properly defined, is nothing other than the grace of God. The grace of God overflowing from God's loving heart in the councils of eternity. My dear people of God gathered here with me this morning. Such wonderful news cannot leave you cold, indifferent, or unaffected. One of the commentators on my library shelf described it this way. Thus, in a vast stretch of thought, we are carried back to mystic beginnings, back to Calvary with its shadows of anguish, back to Bethlehem with its cradle song, back of Sinai with its thunder-toned pronouncement of the law, back to the Garden of Eden with its sinless symphony of physical beauty and moral purity, 
back of creation's wondrous chorus when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Back, 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 he says, back, where in the counsels of the infinite mind and heart of God, the story of man got his start, he says, even there and then, you and I were already given a place in the eternal purpose of our God. Imagine that. Tremble in amazement with me. According to our Bibles, your redemption was not some expedient afterthought on God's part. No, God was already thinking of you. God was already planning for you. God was already giving himself for you and for your salvation long before you were even born. God was making arrangements to save you before you had even sinned, even before the world existed. Try to imagine that with me. Think for a moment, uh, for, uh, for example, of the love that a mother has as she plans and sacrifices for, for her as yet unborn child. And yet even that sacrificial love gives us only a, a faint conception of the eternal grace of God. All during the pregnancy, she plans how she will love and care for that child. And then her love swells in her mother's heart when she cradles her infant in her arms and lays him at her breast. And and yet that poignant scene of a mother's love for her infant pales in compassion with such gracious love of our God towards his children. That marvelous grace of God in, in that he loved us even before the world's foundations were even laid. Such grace is, is too great for words. How do I, how I explain it to you? I, I, I struggle to find words to adequately tell you of God's infinite love for you. Such news, such news, the news of such grace has got to melt the most frigid heart and break, break the most rebellious spirit. Such grace, such grace, such undeserved favor and love from God has got to break your heart and bring you to your knees in a humble confession of sin and gratitude for forgiveness of sin. My precious saints of God, take a last moment. Before you use the elements this morning, before you use the elements of the sacrament and examine your hearts once more, Have you been cold or indifferent to the unmerited favor which God has so freely offered you? Have you spurned God's overtures of grace towards you? When God reached out to you with his love, what did you do with it? Going back to my students for a moment, when I explained this doctrine to them, I looked them in the eye and I say to them, you know... Perhaps you think you have been rejecting only the pleadings of an anxious mother or the invitations of an overzealous preacher when they questioned your life or your lifestyle or your lack of concern about the things of the kingdom. Perhaps you thought it was just (coughs) your parents and the preacher who was on your case because of your indifference. But in reality, it was God speaking to you through these people. And through these people, God was reaching out in love to rescue your soul for eternity. What did you do with it? 
In other words, when your mom or your dad, young people, when your mom or your dad nagged you with respect to your church attendance or lack of it, when the preacher or elder warned you about your apparent indifference with respect to the things of the kingdom, when the minister expressed his concern about your lukewarmness and you shrugged them all off or maybe even blew them all off and resented them, have you understood that in reality you have treated with disdain God's eternal purpose for you. It was God's love calling out to you. It was God's own loving voice calling you through these people. What have you done with his love? How have you received his grace? God is gracious and he included you in the purposes of his grace before the foundations of the world. How have you responded to that grace? My precious, precious saints gathered with me here, young and old, if God's love for you leaves you cold and are unresponsive, perhaps the table is not for you this morning. But I have even more good news for you. You see, what God, what God planned for us in the mystic ages of eternity, he has also brought to pass in time. I want to repeat that. Listen carefully. What God planned for us in the mystic ages of eternity, he has brought to pass in time. The ultimate demonstration of the grace of God is that child in Bethlehem's manger. The epitome of God's grace comes to expression when we see the Christ of God upon the cross of Golgotha. The great grace of God is seen in the empty tomb in Joseph's garden. You see, you see, God made his grace visible in Jesus Christ. Oh, it is indeed difficult to believe that we were the objects of God's love in eternity, even before the world began. But even that difficulty pales and vanishes when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul meant in our text when he says that the grace of God has appeared to all men. Christ was given by God to rescue the perishing, young and old, rich and poor, male or female. There is therefore no distinction in Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, my dear precious, precious saints of God, I never tire of holding up before God's people the gospel, the great gospel, good news for you, for you and for me. Christ left the glory-circled throne of heaven. For you and for me, he humbled himself and was clothed in human flesh. For you and for me, he took the false accusations, the scorn and the whippings. For you and for me, he was deserted by heaven and by earth. For you and for me, he endured that horrible death on the cross. You remember how the scripture defines it, don't you? You probably memorized that text. Paul shouts it out to the Philippian congregation. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ, you see, was the very incarnation of the grace of God. So what does it all mean? Well, it brings us back to our introduction. Put it all together with me and see how the pieces fit. You see, as you approach God's throne, burdened with your sin, 
You do not need to build your hope upon your own efforts as Luther sought to do initially. And neither do you have to pin your hope for, uh, for, for mercy and pardon upon some abstract doctrinal instruction, structure or theory. No, the veil of secrecy that partially obscured the gracious heart of God was completely torn away when Jesus came to earth. Paul meant to teach us just that when he wrote to Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. How thankful we should be for the grace of God that has appeared. Apart from the appearing upon the earth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we would still be left without hope on this earth, and we would be left with fear. We would not dare to believe that God's grace was as great as Jesus proved it to be in his matchless life and vicarious death. Scripture says it so clearly and so succinctly and plainly. God demonstrated his greatness of his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is as the songwriter penned it so eloquently while I was sitting down beneath God's righteous frown, while I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his glorious crown to save my guilty soul. That's grace. That's the grace of God in Jesus Christ. My dear people of God, we can often speak very flippantly and glibly about so th- and so thoughtlessly about free grace, and that it is, but it's only free to us. Have you ever stopped to consider the cost of this grace to God and to his Christ? If God was to forgive men, then he would have to find a way by which he could be the just and the justifier of the ungodly. And that gracious way God found in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, he was freely surrendered by God to take upon himself the awful load and curse of sin, our sin. He took our place. God looked upon him as the very embodiment of all of our sin. On Golgotha, God hid his face from his son. God turned his back on him. God abandoned him. God deserted him. God gave him over to the agonies of hell. God treated him as each of us deserved to be treated because of our sin. In him, God's justice was met and God could then be merciful and gracious to all of those who believe in this great Savior and substitute. My dear precious saints of God gathered in this place this morning, grace is free for you and me. But what a tremendous price was paid by God in Christ. God's grace toward us cast him, cost him his son, his only begotten son, and it cost Christ the unutterable agony and sorrow that was imputed to him. From Bethlehem's humiliation in the sin-soaked stable to Golgotha's blood-stained cross, all for you and all for me, all from God, and all out of his grace. The grace of God 
so exceedingly precious because it was purchased at an awful price. My dear people of God, if your soul is burdened with sin, accept then this grace of God today, for by grace you are saved through faith. Marvelous, a, a poet writes it this way, marvelous grace of our loving God, grace that exceeds our sin and guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than our sin. Of that grace, God reminds us in the sacrament set before us again this morning. Come, taste and see of God's great grace for you and for me. Amen.